Our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen behind me. Again, that's Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that one of his descendants, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Three guys walk into a church, all three presented with the same thing. One says, hmm, that's interesting. Another says, why would you say that? I'm offended. The third would fall down on his face and say, my Lord and my God. What's the difference? Third guy smarter? Perhaps he cracked some code? Two girls grew up in Christian homes. Both grow up hearing about Jesus from as far back as they can remember, making a profession of faith at a very young age. One, by the time she gets to high school, becomes boy crazy, though she does an excellent job hiding it from mom and dad. It's not until college that she really goes off the deep end with the parties, the drinking, the chasing of the boys, and her parents cannot understand how she, quote-unquote, lost her faith. The other walks the same road, struggles with some of the same temptations, but looks to Christ and her local church to find relationships and, and, and meaning. And she, she holds fast to Jesus through the temptation, seeking to honor Christ with her life. What's the difference? Two women go to the same church. They hear the same teaching when they're there, and they know most of the same people. One woman attends about half the time and doesn't really care much about serving in the church, being connected to people in the church, outside of on occasion being convicted by a sermon. The other loves the people of God, is all about serving in her church whenever she can, not because she feels like she has to, not because she's guilted into it, but because she wants to. She desires that. She regularly desires and seeks to serve Christ by serving His bride, even meeting with younger women to mentor them. Again, I would ask you, what's the difference? We've just finished the Easter season, and as Christians, we love to talk about the importance of the cross and the importance of the resurrection, and rightly so. In and through the cross, Jesus took care of our sin problem. What's more, in and through the resurrection, Jesus took care of the death problem. He defeated death for us as He Himself rose from the dead, the first fruits 
of those who are asleep, as Paul says. In other words, if we're in Christ, we know we too will rise. So we should talk of these things a lot. These are glorious things. These are amazing things. We should celebrate them. We should never get over them. In fact, in Revelation 5, we see that we're going to be singing about these very things for all eternity. And while all that is true, right, and good, one thing I'm convinced that we don't talk enough about, at least in Reformed circles, is what happened after the resurrection. In other words, we don't talk enough about Pentecost or the fulfillment of of all of God's new covenant promises from the Old Testament. When we think about what Jesus accomplished for us, when we think about His death and resurrection, if we take Jesus' own teachings seriously, we should think about these things all together. We should think about His death and resurrection and His sending of the Spirit. His sending of the Spirit is vital for us because that is how, and in fact the only way, that any of us ever believe what happened at the cross and the resurrection and then live for Him. And so this morning, my desire is to try to put these things more tightly in our minds and therefore better understand how one guy can hear the gospel and say foolishness while the guy next to him falls on his face and says, my Lord and my God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Acts chapters 1 through 2 and take a look at the lead up to Pentecost and then look at Pentecost itself. Then what I want to do after that is kind of work backwards and look at some of the promises of this watershed moment so that we can better understand what's here. And then finally, we'll take some time to think about how this applies. So turn with me, if you're not there, to Acts 1. I want to start in Acts chapter 1. One. We'll read the first 11 verses. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, that's important, 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he, was, while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. Several things we want to be clear on from this passage. First, in verse 4, we see that the disciples, during this particular interaction with the resurrected Jesus, we're told to wait 
for the promise of God to be fulfilled. Namely, they were to wait for the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. They were to wait for God to fulfill all of His promises of the new covenant. More on that idea in a moment. The next thing I want you to see comes in verse 8, where the risen Christ says, and you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is very, very important. This is, this is the last thing the risen Christ said that we know of before His ascension. And note what He says. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, when these promises are fulfilled, you will receive power. Again, this is important. In a moment, we'll look at an Old Testament text that gets at this very thing. And one of the things the prophets looked ahead to was a coming day when God's people would finally have the power to actually obey and to, and to live for Him. And here's the power, right? A, a, a light switch is about to come on. You might think of a, a, an, an electrical power tool, right? If it sits there unplugged in, it's, it's useless, right? It, it looks like a power tool. It looks like a drill, but you go to click it and nothing happens. But then you plug it into the wall and it's a total game changer. And the same is true spiritually. Here Jesus tells us one of the key things his people will be empowered to do is to be his witnesses. Christ's people will be empowered to open their mouths and boldly tell people about Jesus in Jerusalem, out through all of Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Now, we need to be clear. At this point, when Jesus is telling him this, this wasn't happening yet. At this point, between the resurrection and Pentecost, there was no witnessing going on. No, the, the fledgling body of Christ were, during this interim period, positively put, sitting around waiting, negatively, perhaps even hiding. The power comes in and through Pentecost and will continue until Jesus comes again. So, so turn to chapter 2, the text that was just read. I won't read all the way through it, but I want to highlight a few key points in chapter 2 that we see happen. I have no idea how to turn that fan off, but if somebody could come turn it off, it would be incredible. Chapter 2, the first thing I want to point out is that verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. And, and, I, and I want to make sure that we understand what's going on here. Here, it's, it, it's really important for us to know that just as Jesus was crucified at a big Jewish festival, right? We always talk about that. Pentecost was likewise a big Jewish festival. It's described in Leviticus 23 as the Feast of Weeks. In Leviticus 23, we see that this celebration is to come seven full weeks after the Passover Sabbath, or 50 days after the seventh Sabbath. And, and, and the Greek-speaking Jews, over time, they start calling it Pentecost, which simply means 50, pivoting off of the fact that, again, it came 50 days after the Passover. And, and this is important for us to understand, because we see that once again, just like the cross, 
Just like the resurrection, God is doing monumental things around the Jewish festivals when when so many people were there to make a monumental impact. He he didn't crush his son and and raise him from the dead in front of 100 or 200 people. No. No. He made a big display of these major events in salvation history. And, And with that in mind, we better understand that during this Jewish festival, God fulfilled His promise of the new covenant, sending the Holy Spirit to empower all of His people. That's what's going on in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, we read that on the day of Pentecost, they were all gathered together in one place. Right there, the all is almost certainly referring to the group of about 120 followers of Jesus who kind of stuck together, huddled together, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15. That they were, they were all gathered together, and God decides to make a spectacle over sending His Spirit. In John 3, a text that we'll look at in a bit, Jesus draws an analogy between spirit and wind, which is very appropriate because the word can mean either. Context has to show us which one. Here we're told that there came the sound of a, of a rushing wind, and it, and it filled the entire house where Jesus' followers were holed up. And then we read that divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on them. Now, quick point, it doesn't say that they were tongues of fire. The text literally says tongues as of fire, almost certainly getting at the fact that whatever it was, it was indescribable. But, but tongues of fire was the closest that they could get to it. And so these tongues as of fire hover over them. And those in the room are are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in other tongues. Or they begin to speak in other languages. Real languages. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Now some want to say, no, no, this this was a miracle of hearing. All these guys, what was actually happening is they were actually speaking Greek, but the people just heard them in their own language. But you've got to see that's not what the text says. It says this was a miracle of speaking. Jesus' disciples were literally speaking languages. They had no idea. And the people were looking amazed because they realized these are Galileans. And they're talking to me in my language. Shouldn't be able to do that. Now look, again, when God's up to something big, like in the Exodus or at the cross, or the resurrection, or here with the coming of the Spirit. He takes a go big or go home approach, right? I mean, he does these things where he has the greatest opportunity for maximal impact. And that's what's going on here when we read that all of this was happening and many people took notice. Many different types of people, I should add. Again, with it being another Jewish festival, there would have been people in the city that didn't normally live there, right? They all went up for these festivals. And so there were Jews from all over the place. The text says that there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and Egypt. What's more, he says that there were both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And we're told that they all saw and heard What was going on? Specifically in this instance, what was going on was that they heard these normal, run-of-the-mill Galileans speaking in all these different languages. Some of them, because they had no category for what was going on, said, these guys are drunk. And then look in verse 14. Who steps up to the plate 
to interact with the crowd and offer an explanation, to boldly testify about Jesus. Who might it be? Well, it's Peter the Apostle. Now, for us, we're like, of course it's Peter. He's the leader of the church. But listen, the last time you saw this guy, he's scared to death of a little servant girl. Hey, you were with him, weren't you? No, 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 no. Not me. I have no idea who he is. Stop asking me that. I don't know the man. And now, this same Peter stands up boldly and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I ask you, what changed? Well, you might say, the resurrection changed things. But would that be right? I mean, after the resurrection, Peter leads the other disciples to go fishing. Remember, Jesus called them out of that lifestyle. And, and, and the way it's presented, right, it's as though it's kind of a, well, this ain't going anywhere anymore. We may as well go fishing. And yet now he becomes a fisher of men, as Jesus said that he would. He boldly preaches to thousands. What changed? What changed? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Pentecost is what changed. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit changed everything. Brothers and sisters, be clear. It is here, right there, that the church of Jesus Christ was born. Before Pentecost, you got a few stragglers who seem fearful hiding out behind closed doors. Here at Pentecost, the church goes public. And again, God goes big. Peter receives power, the power of the Holy Spirit. He boldly preaches the gospel. And look at what happens. 3,000 souls saved after that one sermon. One sermon, first megachurch is born. I mean, this is amazing. Now, before we go on, I need to pause here for a moment. Because this is a place where I find that there is a good bit of confusion and, quite frankly, some false teaching. And I think if we understand what's going on in the text much of the confusion should be eliminated. There is one particular branch of teaching in the Christian church. To be honest with you, it's a newfangled teaching, hasn't been around that long, but it is wildly popular, especially in third world countries, sadly because we exported it there. Little parenthesis, it's why at this church, when we talk about gospel partners, we pick those who are all about teaching what we believe to be the historic gospel because we take seriously about exporting the gospel. Well, this school of thought says that if you're born of the Spirit, you will speak in tongues, okay? If you're born of the Spirit, you will speak in tongues. They, 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 they get this pivoting off of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 10. And they would argue that what's going on is there's a second blessing of the Spirit that we should be looking for that, that comes after one has become a Christian. So they would say Peter was a Christian beforehand, but then he's baptized with the Spirit. Here's a problem with that. That is a failure to understand what the Bible's been up to. That is a failure to understand this major shift in salvation history. Pentecost, right here, is where you move. It's a bridge. It's where you move from Old Testament saints to Christians, to Spirit-filled followers of Jesus. The disciples are confusing sometimes when you read the Gospels because before Pentecost, they stand as the last 
of the Old Testament saints. They're, they're believing in Jesus before the cross. They're believing in the promise. They're believing that he's the long-awaited Messiah, but they don't understand the cross. He tells them of the cross, and they're like, no, you know, that'll never happen, right? It's, it's not until Pentecost. That being said, this Pentecostal false teaching that all spirit-filled Christians speak in tongues is a failure to understand when something is descriptive of what happened in history or whether it's prescriptive of something that should always happen. In other words, are these passages describing this glorious shift in salvation history, or are they here to prescribe to church leaders exactly what we should expect every time somebody comes to know Jesus? And I would submit to you the clear answer in these passages is that they're describing for us what happened not what we should look for every time somebody is born of God. And again, I want to explain this a little bit because this is important. Three chapters, real important, you know, as you're kind of thinking about this shift in salvation history, you got to be clear on Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 2, God fulfills His promise of the new covenant, and the Spirit comes to dwell within His people. And folks, that's new. That's amazing. That is a watershed moment in the history of God's plan of redemption, and God makes a spectacle of it, right? Think about the old covenant when God cuts the old covenant. What's he, what's he do, right? The exodus. God makes a spectacle of these huge points in salvation history, and that's exactly what happens in chapter 2. Then you get to chapter 8, and you have another watershed moment, though it doesn't seem that big to us, but it would have been huge to a first century Jew. The gospel would now go to the dreaded half-breeds. Oh, no. It makes its way to the Samaritans, who the Jews hated. And then they're converted. And God validates this, wanting to say, right here, ding, 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 ding. Everybody look. They really are converted. They're really part of you now. You're going to be one big happy family. And in making this clear that they were really converted, God again makes a big spectacle of it, wanting them to see these folks have received the Spirit just like you, and He shows it in an observable way. And just like the Jewish Christians, these Samaritan Christians speak in tongues. Now, if that wasn't difficult enough, you get to chapter 10. And you, for boy, for the good Jewish Christian wanting to follow the law, this one was tough. Surely God wouldn't. Not the dogs, right? Not the heathen. Not the Gentiles. And God says, oh yeah, the Gentiles. Chapter 10, God shocks the Jews. He takes the gospel to the dreaded Gentiles. And in order to validate this one, what does He do? Same thing. He makes a spectacle of this one too to make it clear to all involved that yes, the gospel really did go to the Gentiles and they really are converted just like you Jewish Christians. And thus, once again, the first Gentile converts speak in tongues to validate to the other Christians these guys are part of the family too. And so again, this is where clarity is needed on our end. And I would submit to you, these texts are not prescriptive of what we should expect every time somebody comes to faith. No. See, these are descriptive of the miracles, of the, of the signs and wonders that God had going at the start of His church, making it clear that His church would be made up of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, both Jew and Gentile alike. And thus, after these events, you see many come to faith in Jesus in the book of Acts, 
and throughout the rest of the New Testament letters who don't speak in tongues. And, and, it's clear throughout the book of Acts and the New Testament letters, and looking back on Jesus' promise of the Spirit, and looking back at Old Testament texts that look ahead to this, that after Pentecost, every single one of God's people, so every single Christian, would be indwelt by the Spirit. That is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. That's why Jesus said, it's actually better that I go away. Okay? So that's sort of overview. Now let's step back. Let's work backwards a little bit because we want to see that Jesus told us this was happening. And he told us a lot about what was going on. He, he wanted to see how, he wanted us to see how he's fulfilling the Old Testament, the New Covenant. So turn with me to the Gospel of John. Three very important chapters, chapters 14, 15, and 16. I want to look at four texts pretty quickly that are so helpful in our understanding here. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Wow, that's a big statement. But you're going to understand why as he keeps going. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Notice the helper and the spirit are the same person. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is a vital passage for us to understand the shift that comes through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. As we read this passage, you need to keep in mind, Jesus has already told them, I'm leaving you, right? And in so doing, he says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another helper, and this is the first of what's often referred to as the paraclete passages in John's gospel. Perhaps you've heard this word, paraclete. That's, it's just a transliteration of the, of the Greek word parakletos that the ESV translates as helper. Uh, the reason you often see the transliteration is because it's notoriously difficult to translate. There's, there's no really perfect one-to-one -one correlation, and so some of the translations you read advocate, some counselor, some comforter, and all of these are somewhat appropriate, and all of these fall short, which again is why sometimes people just say paraclete and fill out the meaning. That said, perhaps the most helpful thing in our understanding of this word is the very important though often missed fact that Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. In other words, you already have one. And, and, and given the fact that John calls Jesus a paraclete in 1 John 2, you start to get an idea what he's talking about. Jesus, their current paraclete, right, their current helper as he's sitting there teaching them, has been with them now at that point in time for about two and a half, three years, and, and he's been right by their side. He's been their helping presence, right? He's taught them. He's led them. He's strengthened them. He's encouraged them. He's challenged them. He's taught them about himself, and so on and so forth, and now he's about to leave. And thus, as he's getting ready to leave, he says that he's going to ask the Father to send them another helper, one who is like him, but who will be with them forever. And now we're getting a better understanding as to why it's so much better that Jesus leaves and the other helper comes. Don't miss the language here. This is so important. 
He's just told us that the Father is going to send another helper. And we're saying that the first helper was Jesus himself, right? Jesus says the world can't receive, nor does it recognize the paraclete, but, but you already know him. And here's the ground. He says you already know him because he dwells with you. See, in Jesus, they have had the very presence of God with them everywhere they went. But now things are about to change. And it is a monumental shift. Here Jesus says that in this future day, pointing to Pentecost and beyond, he says the paraclete will not only be with you, but will be in you. And look at what the Spirit of God does when he takes up residence within the believer. Drop down to chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, paraclete again, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, look how he qualifies that, and bring to remembrance all that, what? That I have said. He takes what is Jesus and he brings it to remembrance, right? How about chapter 15, verses 26 through 27? Jump over there. When the Helper, that's Paraclete again, when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about what? People always say the Spirit comes up with all these newfangled ideas, you know? The Spirit adds to the... No, look what He does! The Spirit's all about Jesus. He will bear witness about me. And this is cool. And you will bear witness, Acts 1.8, because you've been with me from the beginning. Go to chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. 4b, the second part of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, it's the paraclete again, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, look what he'll do. <laughs> this is awesome. I wish I had a day to just work through this. He will convict the world. The Spirit will do this. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, remember Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit, when He comes to dwell in us, He's all about taking that which is of Jesus and massaging it deep down into our souls. Now, I want to go backwards a little bit. Go to John chapter 3. Another text. I'm sure you know, a familiar text, but super important as we think about what's going on here. 
This is, this is Jesus looking ahead to Pentecost. Here he's talking to this guy, Nicodemus. At one point he calls him a teacher of Israel. I take that to mean he's of this subset of teachers that probably had the entire Old Testament memorized, okay? And I just point that out because this is a religious dude. This is a guy who's got his you know, I's dotted and T's crossed theologically. This is a guy who walks the walk. This is a guy who, you know, does things right, so to speak, and yet he wants to know, how do I know I have eternal life? And Jesus makes it clear to him, he ain't got it yet, but he tells us how, and this is super important. He says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, literally born from above, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, unless whatever he's talking about here happens, you cannot see the kingdom of God, you will not be with God for all eternity, okay? Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, pointing us back to Exodus, um, Ezekiel 36 that we're about to look at. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, and this water-spirit idea, he's picking up Ezekiel 36, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. And then he says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Keep that in mind. Flip to Ezekiel 36. I know we're doing a lot of flipping around, but this is really important. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. If you're fairly new to the Bible, try to go to the middle. The middle is typically Isaiah. Turn to the right. You'll get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24, and this is Ezekiel looking ahead. He's looking to days that are coming, and he says, this is God talking through the prophet. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now watch the water-spirit connection. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put, look where, within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And don't miss what the spirit does. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk, that is to live in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? That's so important that we understand the Spirit of God doesn't come into our lives to just hang out. He's active. Here Jesus is saying to Nicodemus as we understand Ezekiel 36, and he clearly expected Ezekiel I'm sorry, he clearly expected Nicodemus to understand to make some of these connections. And he's saying, Nicodemus, if this doesn't happen to you, if I don't give you a new heart, if the Spirit of God doesn't take up residence within you, if you are not changed from the inside out, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not be saved. You will not dwell with me for all eternity in my kingdom. That's what he's saying to, to Nicodemus and to us which leads us right into 
application. And I want to start here. Just as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's true of all of us. We must be born again. Sometimes I've talked to people and they're like, oh, what kind of church? You know, do you, is, are you one of those born again groups? I'm like, I don't even know how to deal with that question because there's no other type of Christian. For some of us who've been around the church long enough, or you've heard this kind of teaching, you might struggle, right, even as you're wrestling with this sort of a, well, wait a minute, if God does that, how am I supposed to heed such a command that God's saying to do? And the answer, I think, is pretty simple, though hard to understand. The answer is because God commands us to. Every text, when we think of coming to faith, every text in the New Testament uses active words, right? For example, we're exhorted to seek Christ. We are commanded to repent We are commanded to believe, to be sure, if you do, right? If you come to that place where you recognize that your sin is against a holy God and that you've offended Him, and you you fall on your face and you cry out to Jesus, all glory and praise to God, because the New Testament tells us He's at work even at the level of our will. But still, from our perspective, we must seek Him if we're going to be born again, and so Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, I would exhort you, I'd plead with you, look to Jesus. If this is somewhat new for you, at least be willing to pursue Him. Maybe commit yourself right now to talk to somebody uh, around you. Look to Christ. And if, by God's grace, you are born again, well, let me put it mildly, it will rock your world. It will change your entire life. To be be frank, when I came to Saving Faith, when I turned 21, it messed up all of my plans for my life in a good way, praise God. In her excellent little book titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield, a converted lesbian English professor, describes her conversion as follows, and I love this. She says, quote, I come to the limits of language when I try to describe my life in Jesus Christ. My life as I knew it became train wrecked in April of 1999 at the age of 36, just a few weeks shy of age 37. Now, I don't have time to describe the book, though I commend it to you. It's, it's, it's great. But her point is, up to that moment, she had spent her entire life building her kingdom, building her accomplishments, building her career, building her resume, and everything changed once the Spirit of God took up residence in her life and she started viewing all of life through a completely different set of lenses. See, when we're born again, when God's Spirit really does take up residence within, like I said, He doesn't just hang out. He changes our desires that leads to a change in action. And those two go hand in hand, right? God's Spirit causes us to desire the things of Christ. Remember, Jesus told us the Spirit takes what is Christ's And he massages them deep down into our soul. Another new covenant passage I didn't have time to dig into would be Jeremiah 31, where where we're told that in the new covenant, the the very word of God would be written on our heart. And, And that's what Jesus is saying in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Right? It's in this process that our highest aim starts to become his. We want our lives to count for Jesus, to glorify Him. We want to hear 
Well done, my good and faithful servant. See, it's this that makes us start hating our own sin. We grow to love Jesus more for what He did for us on the cross and hate our sin that nailed Him there. And see, this helps us to better understand why the New Testament teaches us then that true faith in Jesus can both be discerned, you'll know them by their fruits, and tested. If God's Spirit really comes to dwell within us, you will see the evidence of that. Flip over to Galatians 5. The last text we'll flip to. Go to Galatians 5. It's a very important text in thinking about this. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. What's going on here is you've got this works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit comparison, okay? He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So he's saying this isn't an exhaustive list. And things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now hold on a second. This is Paul who's so clear on justification by faith alone. How can he say people who do such things, who practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Are are you clear what that language is saying? People who practice such things are not believers because every believer inherits the kingdom of God, okay? So how's he saying that? And it's not works righteousness. Because he's crystal clear that when the Spirit of God comes to dwell in our lives, he changes us from the inside out so that our lives are no longer characterized. doesn't mean we don't have our moments, but our lives are no longer characterized by this first list, but characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And listen, Paul's not the only one who does this. This is all over the New Testament. I think about 1 John. 1 John's known for having all of these tests, right? 1 John is written. He tells us he's, he's awesome. He's got this purpose statement, right? 1 John is written to believers so that we might know that we have eternal life. So you could say 1 John is written for the assurance of your salvation, and he's got tests to help us to process that. And so things like 1 John 2, verses 3 through 4, he says, by this we know that we've come to know him. Now, I want to just think about that language for a second. By this we can know, we can discern that we have come to know Him. That coming to know Him is covenantal language where we know God and He knows us. It's relational language. So he's testing something really important. He's testing salvation. By this we know we've come to know Him if, here's the test, if we keep His commands. Then he says, the one who says I know Him but does not keep His commands is a liar and the truth's not in Him. So he's saying, just because you publicly testify something doesn't mean squat, right? Oh, I made a profession when I was 12. So what? I'm sorry, I don't mean to be unkind. So what? It is not a profession of faith that saves anyone. 
It is when the Spirit of God changes us from the inside out so that we fundamentally keep His commands. Again, these are not texts pushing us to perfectionism, right? John's very clear. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So He's holding these intention, but there is this change that's expected. He's got other tests, right? By this we know we've passed out of death into life. What's that language? It's born-again language, isn't it? Think of Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God makes us alive together with Christ. And now John's testing that. By this we know that we've passed out of death and crossed over into life. How? You want to take a guess? By the way, we love one another. That's what he says. When the Spirit of God comes to dwell in our lives, there's a new profound love for others that the Spirit of God has done a work in our life. Right? There's a family. There's a connection. That's why you hear Christians testify so often, I feel a closer connection to this brother or sister in my church than my older brother who I've known my whole life who's not a believer, right? You hear that all the time. It's because of this reality. I'm out of time. I'd love to just go on and on here. This is so important. Yes, church, we always want to be clear on the cross and the resurrection, but we need to know how it all works together. I I would submit to us that a, a failure to understand Pentecost, a failure to understand regeneration, is one of the reasons we live in the sea of cultural Christianity. It's the reason that there's all of this, well, I walked the aisle and prayed a prayer and I live like hell and all, is, and all is well. But if we're clear that the Spirit of God changes the lives of His people, then we take seriously what God's doing in our own lives. And we take seriously what God's doing in the lives of one another. And we, we seek to honor Him and glorify Him and and magnify Him like the Bible tells us that we will as He does that work of slowly. And let me be clear, this is a process, right? But we do see the Spirit of God working in our lives. Every single Christian can say at least, while I'm not who I want to be, and you talk to anybody who's been a believer for a long time, we'd all say this, while I'm not who I want to be, praise be to God, I'm not who I once was. Because the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray as we now go to the Lord's table, we reflect on what Jesus has done. Lord, would you raise our affections for Christ? We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.